Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication. Tickets are on sale now, so for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. This week, we welcome Maya Kamas Olds. Born and raised amidst the vines, Maya Kamas has spent her entire life in the wine world. Over 10 years ago, before sustainability was an everyday buzzword, Maya Kamas earned her master's in corporate sustainability and has made it her mission to build regenerative models across all facets of wine, not just in the vineyards. In this no-holds-barred interview, we discuss everything from the need to vote and prioritizing mental health to the great resignation and caring for our ag workers. Let's get into it. Good morning, Maya Kamas. It's very early where you are there in California. Good morning, Polly. I'm happy to be here early this morning. It's foggy and nice and cool here, luckily, for a change. Nice, nice. So um, I, I've i known you on and off for a couple of years. We do work with some of the same organizations. Um, and I, when I was doing the research for this interview, I actually found out something that was just sort of like a oh, light bulb for me which is you're really well known as GM and as viticulturalist, but you actually have a master's degree in corporate sustainability, which, and you've had it for a long time. It wasn't like you went off, you know, three years ago, you're like, Ooh, sustainability is important. I mean, like this, this dates back 10 years or so. So I would love it if today we can talk about some of your work and your efforts with sustainability but first, but first, I want to talk about your fabulous name and your history in wine. For all the people who don't know you, who are like, Maya Kamas, that sounds familiar. Why do I know that name? Where does it come from? So Maya Kamas is the name of the mountains that separate Napa and Sonoma County. They are named, there's a little bit of controversy. It's a Native American word. But fundamentally, it means Howl of the Mountain Lion. There's some different spellings to the north that have a slightly different meaning, but I'm not going to talk about that because it's not my expertise. I am named after the mountains in which I was born and raised. My dad was also the winemaker at Mayakamas Winery for most of my childhood and when I was born. So um, I love that. So when we talk about, you know, we talk about all these different ways that we have multicultural or excuse me, multi-generational wine families. Um, I think that yours seems to be almost like the lowest key version of the multi-generational wine family because you've grown up in this. Your family has Sky, which stands out because it is an off-the-grid vineyard. Is that correct? 
Yep. The, everything is off the grid. We have never had electricity on the property. My parents bought it in the early 70s. The winery is run off a generator when we have to do some, some major project, but the rest of the time it's solar. The house is solar. The vineyards. The only thing that right now is my current focus is trying to get our well on solar. So it pumps water to our tanks automatically to feed the vineyard and do everything else. My comments, are you a hippie? Like it's the family sort of old California hippies. <laughs> my parents definitely are. I'm nice. a little, I'm on the edge of being a hippie and not because I truly, I mean, I went and got my master's in sustainability when it wasn't the cool thing to do. Um, but also I like technology in the future and I'm not really a back to the earther, back to the lander. Mm. So I hate mm. patchouli. I don't like You're not wearing harem and- pants and, and dancing <laughs> no. like Jesus at WOMAD. It's really just not. No, no. 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 Um, I'm going to get filleted <laughs> for saying that probably. Um, you actually tell this story that at 16, you were like, fuck it. I'm out. I'm running away from home. And that didn't maybe take you as far from wine as you'd hoped. No, it dove me straight into Spain, into Jerez de la Frontera, where I ended up getting a job and working because that was my skill set. So my plan to run away was a complete failure. I learned about doing my research about where I want to go and how to get there. The good thing is I learned Spanish in a way that most people don't get to as, you know, a white American girl. Um, and How? I learned what does that the mean? independent How did you, as in like you learned it in the, in the vineyard or you learned like proper immersive Spanish? Like what was, did you learn all the good naughty words? What was different? I learned all the good naughty words. I was in the cellar just working with whoever was there. Nobody spoke any English, at, you know, in 1992, I want to say 1991, something like that is when I was there. Like nobody there spoke any English. Americans were vastly hated because it was near the Rota American military base. So I had to really defend my position and be a good representative of a California girl. and. I think I was successful. How I long did you stay in lot. Spain? I was there for just about a year. And then I came home. Went and back went to, to wine in California? No, I came home to study politics and chemistry. And how long did that stick? Three years I studied that. And then my math skills were not up to the major that I wanted in microbiology. And so I ended up in fermentation science instead. So really is a chemist, but we can just all much more appreciate the work that you're doing than, you know, if if you were lab chemist doing something else. So high five for that change as a wine (laughs) lover. I I will say I'm okay with that. Um, So corporate sustainability, you have been a pretty vocal, you know, advocate for as long as I've read anything that you've written or as long as I've heard you speak around issues. First, it was organics, then organics, it seems like over the years really took on a much more regenerative approach. Um, but it's not just in the vineyard. Is that correct? Your your approach is much more about that beyond the vineyard. Yeah, 
when I was in the Presidio Graduate School, we learned a lot about, at that time, regenerative agriculture was only just uh, starting. It was this gentleman in Texas was kind of starting to do it. But in our program, we talked a lot about bringing that piece of kind of using regenerative economies and regenerative systems to help the ecosystem services, people, economies, like everything. And so everywhere that I've gone, I've kind of melded that into my leadership, whether it was at Diageo after I graduated or really at Newton is where I really was kind of given free reign to kind of wrap it into the whole business. And we were really doing, that was really how we were rebuilding Newton to come back. And at Gloria, I had even more leeway to do what I needed. It was COVID and it was an amazing time and a place to get to show that it works. Like, and I really, I mean, you saw little bits and pieces of it. I really kind of tried to ingrain it into every piece of the business, making sure everything we did gave back in some way. Every decision we made, like we thought out like where it was going and where it would take us. It didn't always work, but it really made us think through every decision we made. So what does that mean in like the day-to-day context? And and this is not particular to any one position or another position, but I'm just thinking about all of the jobs that we already have to do and how underfunded we always are and, you know, overburdened. what is onboarding the team like? What does the operations of doing that look like? Like, how do you actually make that a, a cultural part of a business? At Gloria, I got lucky, and a lot of people that were already there thought that way, but hadn't been empowered to work that way. But as we hired new people and going through the interview process, every question that I had my team ask and think about was like, you don't need to use the word sustainability, but think how do they think about taking care of people and the environment. And if we saw that spark in somebody that they cared, even if we hired one person in particular, I can think of that he was like, yeah, yeah, I really care about these things, but I don't know that much about it because I've never been able to do it. Like, here's what my passion is. He's like, but I honestly, I don't know. I can't. I've always done these things conventionally. And we brought him on and he ended up being the largest advocate and took on like the IWCA program like and owned it and was very excited about it. Where in the past, he would have been like, eh, no, I'm not really into that. He really, truly was in the questions we were asking. Those things, you could see pieces of it. Um, and then in the onboarding, we would go, we developed you know, the general onboarding, here's the rules and regulations, but we would do this PowerPoint that would kind of talk about, here's the values of the company around regenerative business systems, like, and what that means, and the feedback loops and all that. So for the gentleman that you're, you're talking about, the kind of what I'm hearing you say is that maybe people don't have the corporate language that we have around ESG and sustainability, this and region that and yada, yada, but yeah. almost to the way that they, they feel it in their bones. Like either that was how, you know, for whatever reason, that's their ethos that they're bringing with them. Um, and for me, what I'm thinking about is how easy it is for all of us to get wrapped up, you know, and like our corporate speak that we have this expectation of, if you know it, you're going to have the jargon kind of thing. But it sounds like that that's, that's a fallacy. Yeah, that's totally not true. 
I have a good friend who just took on an amazing job in a large corporation, and she has spent her whole career, she's about my age, working in a small family business. And everything I get back from her is like, what does this word mean? What does that word mean? It's not that she doesn't know what she's doing or how to do it. It's just it's a different language. And whether we create that to exclude people or just to kind of create that clicky feeling in the corporate world, people know the things and it makes them intimidated when they don't need to be. Big business, right, has gotten a hold of this now. We've got lots of public discussion around not only what our activities are, but now we've got lots of certification around it. You know, we've got, I I can't remember, I've made a joke this past year, like, have we hit peak sustainability conference in wine yet? Because it just felt like it was all that we were talking about. Is it, is it actually like, moving the needle in terms of what we as everyday workers and what our everyday drinkers are understanding about sustainability efforts and wine? Do certifications count? Do the communications count? Do retailers give a shit? Like what's, what's the practical application of all this that we're doing? That's a really deep and hard question. There's so many pieces of it. I think fundamentally we still have so much more work to do to whether it's, you know, climate change to get our carbon footprint down as a global society that can't just be one person. I think today consumers, it depends on the price point of the wine, the general consumers, people who are buying, you know, under $10 bottles of wine. Sustainability is not something that is in their bandwidth to consider. They are for the most part dealing with how do they get food on the table and can they afford them, you know, a $10 mm. bottle of wine. As you go up the scale, I think there's a place where consumers really do think about it and they're very conscientious and they make decisions based on it. But then you get into the upper tiers and I don't think they think about it very much. And there's an expectation that it's done in a certain manner as well. When you get to the $200, $300, that is not the things that those consumers are thinking about. But I think also they just assume it's done to the highest standard possible. They don't, with some few exceptions, people in general don't understand how wine is made still today, which I find amazing because my bubble, of course, is the wine industry. And that is all I know from growing to making to hospitality and direct to consumer. Like, that's all I know. So I find it amazing that, but people don't know, like I'm on a plane flying somewhere having a conversation and people ask the silliest questions but they're not silly to them because they don't know. And they truly want to know and understand. Yeah. And Um, I I think it's actually a really interesting problem that we have on the producer side of it or on the marketing side of it, the comms, because I'll tell you a story. I have, um, I hear this often enough. I have one very specific client instance where we were discussing their sustainability actions. They're actually doing a ton of stuff behind the scenes. I found out there's a word for it. It is called, what is it? It's not greenwashing. Shit, 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 shit. I'm going to back up. Now I can't remember. I blanked out. There is a green hushing is what it's called. There you go. Green hushing. And um, it's posited that actually green hushing is more of a problem for many independent businesses than greenwashing is because what's happening, like this client, they're doing a lot, but they're so afraid to communicate about it for fear that Maybe they're not doing it right or they're not doing enough, you know, that that someone's going to look at it and be like, oh, well, that's not the best place to 
part, you know, bicarbon offsets or this other yeah. effort doesn't really work or you're full of shit or whatever. Um, and, and I think that that, at least for independents who don't have, you know, huge PR teams backing them, I think that is this real challenge. It's really hard. And I have never heard of the green hushing term before. And yeah. I kind of love that. I Great see that word, all right? the time. Yeah. People are doing so many good things and they don't talk about it because the people who talk about loudly what they are doing often are not doing things the right way because they have the money to broadcast all of these things. And I have definitely worked for companies. They're like, what are we doing? What are we doing? And I'm like, well, we're doing these five things, but we've just started. We, we can't talk about them because we just started this month or this year and we won't see an impact that we can talk about for two, three, five years, which is true of a lot of things in the wine industry, not just environmental or social things. Um, so going back then to Sky, which you know has really always been doing a lot of these things. Um, was there ever this moment that you looked at it and you were like, oh, look, suddenly we're not the crazy hippies in the room anymore. Like people think that what we're doing is okay. Or honestly, do you have those, we told you so kind of moments that you're like, yeah, well, you might want to talk about how you've been doing it for three years, but we've been doing it for 35 years. You know, how, how do you balance that legacy of amazing practices with this, you know, like push toward communicating it now? So my family is a special case. We have been doing all of these things since the beginning. I remember my dad used Roundup for a few years when it first came out because it was super safe. And that was all the advertising back in the 80s. I don't know. I don't remember when it was. But our family house sits right in the bottom of the vineyard. And the whole vineyard basin like comes to the house. And I remember my dad saying to my sister and I, I'm going to go spray some chemicals. You can't come out of the house no matter what. They're super safe. But no matter what, you are at the bottom. You're going to get sick because if I put these chemicals out in the vineyard. And I remember my sister and I were super little and young. and We didn't totally understand. But we were like, why would you do that? <laughs> it's been something conscientious in my family. Like we were raised to, you know, you grow as much as your own food. And when you go buy food, you don't go buy the highly processed stuff. You buy the stuff that's good for you. And yes, it costs a little bit less, but you're getting more nutrition at the end of the day. And I realized to some extent that is, we don't, we didn't live in an inner city. We lived in a country off grid where we didn't have running water until I was like 10. So, oh, well, you know what? My kids are, my kids will sit right there with you and talk about it. So we were way hippies. They went to Steiner schools, so Waldorf schools. We had gardens, yeah. you know, like they could they could walk through a field and be like, that's dill, don't eat that. Oh, you can make paint out of that, you know, like the whole thing. And um, and what was funny about it was that we actually intentionally lived in, you know, just right on the outskirts of Auckland City. So we lived in a really, really mainstream area. And part of it was that we wanted them to see this dichotomy between, okay, privately, we choose to live this way. You know, we eat happy meat when we eat meat. We don't, you know, mm -hmm. we eat organic, like the whole thing on it. Our clothes are all cotton linen and silk. Um, and, and what's been super interesting now is that they are 19 and 20. And of course they went through their rebellious phase where they wanted to live off like Willy Wonka shit. Um, but now they're like, my clothes are linen, cotton, and silk, and I buy things secondhand and I repair and replace. So high five to your parents. You know, I want to give them a big old hug because it, we had people think that we were bonkers for a very long time. Um, 
Okay. So kind of rolling this back into this idea. <laughs> I kind of love that because there's not a lot of us around that were raised that way, especially oh. today. And I get called some of the weirdest things because I think I think like that. I'm like, I shouldn't buy that because it is not good for the planet. And sometimes I do because I'm like, I don't have a choice. I need a jacket right now. And I know this has got polyester. I'm going to buy it anyway. <clears throat> Oh, I know. And actually, for good or for bad, it, it maybe it makes you an overthinker. Like I, I look at the my my consumer choices. I look at, you know, so now I live in Spain. I don't have a car. I can't tell you how amazing it is to live in a country where I don't have a car. Um, there was recently in Paris a conference on it was the sustainable leather forum. And the whole thing is a one-day conference about um leather use, how is it appropriate? What are the, you know, what are the substitutes? How do we deal with this dichotomy of it it lasts forever? So we don't have to replace it, but it's an animal product. So you really, you become like a super geek in your head where you can never just make like the impulse decision. Like, "Mm, what's the implication of what that I'm, of what I'm doing right now? Uh, and, and it does obviously food and wine or food, right? Wine, maybe not so much, but food for many people is their first point of entry to this notion of organic sustainability, because we can, it's just so tangible that we're like, oh, clearly this makes sense for us. Um, but there's a lot more to sustainability to corporate sustainability than just the environmental part of it. And I kind of worry, it's great that we're doing it, but I kind of worry that sometimes we as consumers and as businesses as well can get really, really hung up on the environmental side. Um, You know, because how can we not with climate change, but it does also incorporate governance. It does incorporate, you know, our, our social respect, our treatment, our systems, the whole thing. So this this is something that you've been active in in your volunteering, if I recall correct, as well as changes within you know your workspaces. Is that anything that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I would love to. I think one thing that really everybody always talks about all this environmental stuff, and they're like, "Well, you know, that's an elite thing. Like, general people can't afford to do this." And like, fundamentally, well, why can't you, why can't people afford to buy organic produce or, you know, shop at a farmer's market. And it comes down to we don't, especially in the United States, more so than anywhere else, we don't pay people properly. We don't value their work. I mean, if you look at any statistic about minimum wage and the lack of increase for inflation in the last 20 years, we're paying people like it's 1980. And in the last two years in the wine industry, inflation has been between like 11 and 19%. Here in the Bay Area, you know, in the North Bay, anybody, whether it's the farm workers, the seller workers, the guys on the marketing team, they're not getting raises that reflect that and they're not being compensated properly. As a matter of fact, I got super upset the other day because I was talking to a group of friends and a bunch of people took pay cuts during COVID and they are owned by wineries that did not take any losses. They got PPE. They got PPP. They made a ton of money because everybody was buying wine, all especially Napa wines at certain price points. Um, and we took pay cuts and we didn't make up for that. And the wines were still profitable. Uh, one of the things that I did that really helped Gloria kind of stand on its feet 
and I've done in other places is I make sure that I'm paying people properly and giving them raises, getting them to a place where they can afford at the end of the day to not go to a second job, that they can then go home and spend time with their family and do their kids homework with them and buy groceries and do those things. And it makes them much happier to come to work for the hours of their work, even when some of them I'm super guilty of this. They come to work and they're working 10 hours instead of eight hours just because there's not enough people to get the job done and they throw in their extra hands, but they're happier to do that because they're compensated for it. It's not just, well, I've got to stay and do this. I'm going to miss out on two hours with my kids. It's like, no, I'm getting paid for this. It means I get to do that trip to Disneyland with the kids. Then also they're making better decisions when they're out shopping and they're spending more money in the community and they're buying more wine across the industry because they're, and they're raising their kids to want to come work in an industry where right now we're really struggling because nobody wants to come work in the wine industry because it's paid less than all the other industries around us. Like it's super for all the romanticism, every single person's working physically and hard except for some, you know, corporate people and the larger companies. But if you're a winemaker in a super high end, smaller winery, you're pulling a hose once in a while. Like it's physical hard work. It's not something you can do till you're 78, 80 years old. And we're paying people just above minimum wage. I think that is something that is never talked about and something that really needs to be talked about and made part of the discussion so that we can really support the community and what we're doing. And when we're talking about how we're building these regenerative systems, it's not just about our farming practices and the soil carbon. Like everybody is going to do better if they have a little bit more money to spend at the end of the day. Everybody will make better choices about what they're purchasing if they can afford to do so. And yet, sorry, that's my soapbox. Yeah, no, please stay on it. Um, You know, my, my thing is always the money and our prices and our margins. Like I, if I could solve this problem, I would be a gazillionaire. Like where is that linchpin that we can adjust that makes it possible? Because literally from the, well, have the environmental practices that leads to, that's a great idea, but the money has to come from somewhere. So then we have to charge more. So then we're tackling the consumer economy. And if they're not going to buy, then what does that actually do? And then we've got the three tier system. I mean, like, is is there a solution? Do we all go back to drinking locally and carrying our little jugs up the street so that we're refilling what's been produced right up the corner and we're keeping all the money in the community? I mean, like how, you know, I, I can't I can't even begin to find the way forward in solving the problem that I and imagine like you see every single day, which is the money is just not there. Money is not there because it's concentrated in small areas. And that is the problem fundamentally. And I think that's where it's not just in the United States, because now I'm seeing it spread across the world. People need to get out and vote and they need to not just vote for the big names on the ticket. They need to actually figure out who is going to work on the things to support them, not who these big corporations are fundamenting because fundamentally that would change the world versus us getting to a place where like they are in Iran right now with, they are going through hell. They have been going through hell partially because of this economic thing they're having to stand up and fight with their lives literally for just a little bit of equality. The rest of us are going to end up in that same place in five, 10, 20 years, depending on which country you're at. If we don't figure it out now, 
look in Europe, we're concerned because we have the energy costs going up. I was reading an article today that yeah. said they're very concerned that some key industries Europe wide will be hit. That being glass making and and steel working. Um, I, I do think that when we're talking about money, I'm, I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to anonymize it for the purpose of the story. And you and I said we were going to try to not get political, but that's just not going to freaking happen. So, hey, if we get filet, so what? I don't read the comments. <laughs> screw it. Um, so there was an instance in the wine world a couple years back where some heads, talking heads in wine, you know, my beef has always been people bitching about why aren't millennials buying? Why aren't millennials buying? So they're in some big public discussion talking about, well, why is it that millennials aren't buying? And I looked at the people talking and I was like, because all of you voted against the mechanisms that would give the millennials money to actually buy your product. You know, like this is, so yes, we've gone, we've gone way into politics on that one. Um, but, but this is, we are not, we do not live in our own bubble even though sometimes it feels like it does, you know, we are a part of a greater economy and the decisions that we make, whether we're leaders in the business, that those personal decisions we make and political decisions we make have a huge impact. Um, since we've gotten into the politics, I'm going to bring up the <laughs> issue of our agricultural workers. Um, obviously this has been ongoing. I mean, when you go into the research, I can't find a time that this has ever not been written about, you know, our labor issues in wine. Uh, recently we have had the Sonoma wise effort happen. We've got the Salud initiative in Oregon. Um, and I can't remember if it's Sonoma wise where the, uh, advocates were actually the ones who said that ICE would never be allowed. Uh, ICE would never be allowed on the property. You know, is this something that you feel like the message is getting across that we as trade care about it, the consumers caring about it? Kind of, what's your take on that with the work that you're doing in Napa? I don't think as an industry, the message is getting across. And I don't think as an industry, we really are embracing it as we should. Um, because fundamentally, if we were taking care of people in the way that we should and responsibly, it wouldn't, there wouldn't be these organizations, you know, having clinics and healthcare that's affordable and accessible to anybody, particularly farm workers and their families has been one of the hardest issues I've dealt with COVID kind of, I knew it was bad before and it always worked to try and make that better, but COVID really opened my eyes to how bad it is, and the lack of education about health matters in general. I, I use this group, Nicola Health and Safety, for a lot of my training. But as part of that, they always throw in this nutritional piece and health ed piece. I've used them for years. The lack of understanding of basic nutrition in that community because of their poverty is so extreme that when it came to covid I didn't even know how to approach it and deal it with this whole crew of people, most of them who are older than me, because there's not many farm workers these days anymore that are younger people. It's going to hit us really hard soon because it's extremely hard physical work and they're not compensated for breaking their bodies to make us wine or, you know, it's farming in general. Wine mm -hmm. should not be just called out. It's farming in general. Agreed. Um, but also they don't have the basics of literacy of basic health care. 
because they don't have access to it for starters. And what they get is off the TV and radio and their TV and radio is just as biased as ours. Like Mm -hmm. that's not any different. Um, So what I have done and worked really hard to do is make sure that when I do my health and safety programs, I am always including that health piece. Like I don't just say health and safety is like not getting your finger cut off and the spinning wheels of the tractor and the bottling machine. It's what's the basic nutrition you need. You need to go home and get eight to nine hours of sleep. Like, what do you need to not have that second job? Like, how can we support you? Um, here's protein. Here's vegetables. Like, eat a little bit of that. Do not drink those. Don't drink 25 monster drinks a day because you will have a heart attack. Here's three people that had heart attacks because, you know, giving them real world examples because they're up close and personal with it. The number of people I know who have worked for me with diabetes and has impacted their job has been huge. And a lot of that is because they don't have basic health knowledge. So I think, you know, we have done some things in Napa and Sonoma around and Oregon around like salud and clinics to help them, but they don't reach enough people. Ultimately, we're going to have to find a way through this and how to support them. Some of that, and especially at Gloria, I loved that I was able to bring on so much technology there that I was able to take those guys who are doing those jobs, pull them away from that physical backbreaking work, put tools in to do that work, and then have them do the fine hand tuning quality police. It made them happy. They physically were like, oh, I thought I was going to have to retire next year. And I didn't know how I was going to do that. But now actually I can do this for like two or three more years because it's not backbreaking and it's enjoyable. And I feel like I'm contributing to the quality of the wine. Um, I made sure that like, no, go ahead. No, no, no. So, I mean, like that. I'm so glad that you brought up technology um, because there is you know, Marie Antoinette is the shepherding, you know, there's this movement in wine that is like the sort of back to the land um, where no mechanization in the vineyard and and really what I'm going to describe again, screw it. We're so far down the controversial <laughs> path on this one. Just go for it. You know, it, it is the sort of natural wine oh, romanticism of it, but you know, what's, What's the impact of that on the people or, or even, I mean, people's physical health, people's mental health. So is this something, have you worked in the process of moving toward more mechanization within a vineyard where you can talk about the impact, you know, how, how people were responding, just like those examples that you were giving? Yeah, it's one of my favorite things to talk about and use as examples to say, hey, technology is not bad especially for the wine industry, which we are very backwards. Like you see it in e-commerce, like how the rest of the world has moved forward in these things. And in the wine industry, we are like still kind of in just bring your jug, bring your jug. Exactly. Which actually I'm not opposed to doing that. We don't, (laughs) I loved when I moved to the Barossa for the first time, I saw people doing that. I'm like, what are they doing? People would take their jugs. I, I loved it. Yep. Um, Technology, mechanization, Marie Antoinette. There is a huge place for it and we don't use it enough. And we talk about wine being romantic, so people are terrified of it. But the truth is you can actually get better quality wine if you're bringing in the tools to take some of that backbreaking stuff out. And it's expensive and people don't want to invest in it. But you know, if you compare the payback of a machine versus 10 guys in the vineyard and the quality impacts that you're giving, 
it's it can be an amazing tool to make better wine, take care of your workforce, and kind of in some cases it's better for the planet in other cases it's not it depends on where it's at um but it really can add a lot to the quality of the wine because you're saving the labor force to do that really high touch stuff that not everybody can afford to do and all of a sudden people can afford to do like specialized leafing and stuff like that because then they're doing the other stuff by hand when I was um, running Diageo, I was working up and down the state of California. I wasn't running Diageo, but the vineyard side of it. And we had three properties on the Central Coast that people never went into other than to check the quality. Every single job was mechanized. And I, the first time I had some experience in Australia, so I was not totally unprepared. But when I came in, I was like, oh my God, this is insane. Like even at that time... 10 years ago, we had the ability to completely farm vineyards without people going into them, which terrifies people for many reasons. But when you're making a $10 bottle of wine, why not? Like, that is not where the quality piece is coming in. Um, And people were paid better because they're driving this fancy, crazy, amazing technology so that it's, you know, a high trained, better paid job, which I think is important to provide. And it doesn't take a high school education either. What I think is really interesting about that is that, you know, I always say, I must say it once a month on the podcast, it would be so great if some of these stories, some of these cases were public, you know, like if we could dispel some of the romantic mythology or really the just like nihilistic, we're all going to lose our jobs. Um, That in mind, I know something that, we're all talking about kind of offsides that has to do with labor and health and ESG are the concerns around mental health. Um, I will be the first one to raise my hand and say that the past two years, it, no routine, no patterns, loads of work, you know, so it's been unlike any period of my work life ever before. And, and it can be really hard to sustain a sense of equanimity, you know, and just like going with the flow. When you're looking at corporate um, sustainability, does mental health come into that radar? Are we thinking about the health of our workers from our, our farm workers through to our executives? Or is that just like too, is that too touchy feely? No, I think it's important to talk about. I think in general, it's still extremely taboo. Like, millennials and gen z talk about it a little bit more but above that like gen xers our generation above it's still pretty rocky um i have always encouraged my team to take mental health days and stuff like that when they need them and you know i can whether it's from trauma or whatever but i really can see when my team's falling apart and like hey you guys take the weekend off take the week off like what do you need how can i support you I am, in all fairness, I am super demanding. I'm not that lackadaisical. Come in when you want. Like, I want to see the work produced. I want to see things come in. I want it to be very high quality. But also, I recognize that nobody can keep going at that pace. So you guys go take the time, take the weekend off. I just had a case of one employee completely breaking down and just about to quit. So I was like, take three days off. And she's like, well, can I answer emails from home? And I was like, no, you cannot. Like, leave your computer at work. Yes, I usually tell you to take it home so it's not in the house when it burns down, but like 
leave it here, go. And she came back. She's like, that was only three days. And I feel so much better. Mm. Like, because in the wine industry, lots of industries, but we don't ever shut off. We take our phones home. We have an email. We're working too fast. We're working too hard. The guys in the field are working days. They're working nights. The seller crews are working days. They're working nights. They're not seeing their family. We all talk about self-care. They don't have the money to do self-care or they don't even have the time for it because they're just going so fast. As those hierarchy of needs, you know, we, we yeah. all, and we all have that moment. Like, I don't want to make that sound like that's an elitist thing even because while I recognize that there's certainly a financial component to it, to think that our executive staffs are not dealing with, with the same level of mental stress and, and burnout as anyone else, I think right now would absolutely be a fallacy after the past two years that we've had. So in your space with you being, you know, very open about it, is it, is it like an open door policy? Someone feels like they can just walk in and be like, my comments, I'm not doing so well, or is it formalized, you know, is mental health in America becoming a part of healthcare and insurances? So what's happening? It's still, you know, every company I've worked for in the past 15 years has had a mental health crisis phone line because honestly, we've, especially here in Northern California, there's fires, there's earthquakes, like we've, there's mass shootings, like we've had all of that. There's usually a crisis line. There's not still a formal way to talk about that. A lot of the younger generation talk about it more. I've always had an open door policy about it. Um. I don't necessarily see a lot of people are still even generation above me and they kind of don't want to talk about it. Don't want to know about it until that generation kind of moves out of the workforce. I think it'll still be a really, cause they are the leaders and owners of most companies. It will be really hard because they were raised and it's beaten into their system that they don't talk about their feelings. Like right. it's not that they actively are trying to, do something bad it, that is what was beaten into their heads you don't talk about your feelings like and especially ever, not, not in the workplace <laughs> yeah exactly. no 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 so, um, I, I actually one thing that I remarked upon so this week we've just had um Roger Federer retired I don't know so I asked earlier if you watch tennis and yes, I do I not watch tennis <laughs> yeah but I watched the seven minute speech that he gave on on the court and um and he was in tears and, you know, and Rafa Nadal was in tears as well. And I, I said to my husband, I was like, oh, did you watch? He's like, no, I didn't. I said, you know, I don't, I don't know a lot about tennis at all, but here are these grown men on TV, like tearing up as, as he is stepping out of, you know, a, an incredible career. And that is not something that I remember seeing growing up. And I just felt like, you know, that was so, so uh, moving to me and, and actually making me realize how much the world is changing, you know, that it's okay for yeah. that to happen. Um, this is the weirdest pod. P people are going to come here for wine and they're going to be like, yes, we're, we're talking about politics about <laughs> and tennis. And, you know, if, if I was a content producer, I'd be like, so what kind of wine? Oh, I can actually. I, I remarked, here we go. Nike did all of the post Serena Williams retirement um, content 
Moet Shandon did all of the post Roger Federer retirement. So there we go. We can somehow bring all things back to alcoholic <laughs> beverages. Uh, so, so, okay. In the work that you're doing now, I've not actually given you a chance to talk about you. You recently changed from Gloria Ferreira. That was last year, if I recall correctly. Tell us what you're up to now. So Phil Katuri has been the organic guru of farming for 40 years. Um, and I worked for him a long time ago. Was, and he asked me to come back to really help him figure out the next steps of his business and where I wanted to go. So I have kind of stepped in and helped him do that um, and help his children kind of progress in their careers and do some mentoring across the business to really help. They have a small winery brand, Winery 16600, and then the Vineyard Management Arm Enterprise Vineyards, which are completely separate, but kind of similar ownership and really help them figure out how to transition into the next generation. It's been challenging and fun. They're all big personalities. I mean, in the wine industry, we always talk about how winemakers are the big, my Instagram is vineyard pests because what's the biggest pest in a vineyard? It's a winemaker. But the truth is that's not true. Like on the vineyard side, there's just as many big personalities. It's just, they're not the ones that are in the face of the public as much. They're, they can be. Well, this is what I said. I describe you as quiet, but tough, you know, like, you know, when you get to talking, you can be just like, yep, that's the way it is. So um, yes. So continue with that story. So you're, you're helping them as they are tackling secession planning. Is that right? You know, just where it's going to go. Which is hard. Mm. It's really, really hard. Like it's hard, you know, as an owner, when you built this business that is well known and, that you're super proud of to kind of let the reins go. Very, very challenging. Like it makes all these identity crises come. And when you're children of a big personality and somebody who built that, like having the same, like how do you in a modern world develop that and retain kind of that heritage and ownership and feel of the business, but take it into the next generation and change things. And, you know, generational family businesses are, there's some statistic that they 90% of businesses don't make into the third generation ever. One of the things that makes me think of um, like great story. I don't know if you ever heard this when Ben and Jerry sold to Unilever, they did this thing that at the time had never been heard of where Ben and Jerry's, the company required that Unilever set up an independent um, basically like brand trust who that, that trust job was to protect the integrity of the Ben and Jerry's values within the huge organization that was Unilever. You know, and you think about that. I, I just think about that in, in a space where we don't have enough money, we don't have enough time, labor's a problem, we're moving toward regenerative agriculture, or, you know, what are pretty much like philosophically or or belief systems, purpose-driven choices. And then we have to be able to pass that down to another generation and and know that they're going to protect what we held dear. Yeah, it's it's super emotional, of course. Like for me, one of the things I've been my name has a lot of heritage and I always feel like I need to live up to it. Not just for a winery that I was raised in and around besides my family's like every day after school, I was at my like either helping or 
probably more distracting because we were kids, but I feel like the wine industry is losing some of that heritage piece. So like Ben and Jerry's, like, how do you protect that? That was part of when Phil came to me. You know, one of the things I've been talking to lots of people around Napa Valley, like as the generation retires, how do you, they built amazing things. Like they built this wine industry to be this world kind of power world name and they're retiring. Like how do we retain some piece of what they built an understanding of that while the new generation comes in and makes it their own and changes the world in their way. But how do you keep that heritage so we can yeah. learn the the good things and the bad things? Cause there's both in every case, yeah. of course. And that is really kind of what been a huge driver in my career. Um, and, you know, if you're looking at kind of this pulls away from wine a little bit, but like, there's been tons of handovers of large, well-known Phelps, Schaefer, like that generation is going and new people are coming in and they don't necessarily understand the world in which they are coming in. So I love the Ben and Jerry story because Unilever is a monstrous company, but they have done a lot of really good things as well as plenty of not so good things. Like when I was first getting started after graduating with my master's in corporate sustainability, they were one of the companies I really wanted to work for because they actually have a lot of good intention. The same thing with Diageo, like they do plenty of things that are not right and you can't always get it right, especially when you're so big and people's personalities take over but they also do a lot of really good things so how do you get into a large company say Schaefer and how do you retain that piece of history of the brand that makes it special and unique and how do you bring in all these new outside things like that you know make it pay back so the ownership doesn't just kill it but also there's something left of what it is, the essence of it. Well, and, and that really that really comes right back to the heart, right, of sustainability. We use sustainability and, and nowadays it's synonymous with climate change activism, you know, and with water recapture and, and with sort of you name it on the ESG thing. But ultimately, sustainability is supposed to be the notion of how do we build good long-term brands that are here for the next 50, 100, in Europe, 300 years, you know, that, that it's, it's literally at the heart of long-term brand building. And in that, we have all of the components, caring for the health, caring for the mental health, caring for the planet, of course, you know, what does the governance look like? What kind of people are we hiring? What does that secession planning look like? Um, and so, yes, the next time that I am at a wine and sustainability conference, my hope, high five, is that we have more of the S and G and not not only the E on the sustainability side. I fully agree. I sat on a panel the other day that made me a little, I, sorry, I didn't sat. I was not on the panel, but I was listening to the panel and I was pretty frustrated because all they did was talk about environmental pieces and what that means. And it's, you can't even tackle the environmental piece until you're dealing with the rest of it. And I think it's important to talk about the environmental piece, but I think it's become a little bit of greenwashing that that's all we talk about because there is so much more to it to protect the industry that we love. Like whether I'm bad mouthing it or not, I love what I do. It's in my blood. 
you know, it is definitely something special to be able to create a product that drives so much passion in the consumer, whether it's a lower end bottle of wine or a super expensive one, it drives passion in the people who are consuming it. It's like an amazing peach or cherry or something like people stop and go, Oh my God, what was that? Yeah. I, I, look, I'm right there that. with you. I, I don't ever want it to feel like I'm ripping on my industry, but maybe it's more kind of ripping the bandaid off of some parts of it, just because none of us would stay on this path if we didn't fundamentally love this industry because it's too hard. As you say, too many long hours, yeah. not enough pay, you know, like, and, and so I think that it is really important that we open up these discussions about it. And I'm going to get things wrong. I mean, I think that that's, you know, if I have one thing to say about any sustainability efforts, at some point we're going to fuck up, like, you know, because we're learning and we have to give ourselves. And actually I would say, give each other a a little bit more grace as well. I was having a conversation with um, a good friend of mine recently in wine talking about some sustainability issues that they were talking totally unaware of. And they just got, you know, like blindsided that this is a whole thing. In this case, it's digital sustainability. They got completely blindsided about the whole thing. And I'm like, well, that's just it, right? You know, all of these things, they're all moving targets. And, um, and when do we have time to watch every panel, read every newspaper, do all the research? So yeah, that maybe that's what I would say is I can be forgiving. Hopefully we can all be forgiving and just enough with enough with the judgment around it. Um, that's my Buddhism coming out. Everybody makes mistakes. I make mistakes. Like my team makes mistakes. I try really hard not to, unless they're intentional. I try really hard not to be like, especially because everybody's too tired the wine industry, like I said, is physical and exhausting and long hours. Like, be kind, be forgiving. I, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just break down and lose patience with myself, probably more than other people, but also with other people. That's, yeah. I think, the number one thing we can do with sustainability is be a little bit of empathetic and not judgmental and understand that everybody is fighting whatever demon they're fighting and they're trying their best with the knowledge they have. So, yeah you know, you give them more knowledge, give them more power, like whatever those things are that they need to be able to step up. Word. Maya <laughs> Thomas, we have gone all around the the topics today. I'm so glad you did. I, I know um I know that these are not some of the easiest conversations to have in wine. I'm grateful to you for being willing to sit down and talk with me about this. Um I to be fair, mad props. I don't know how many people I could have actually gotten in the room to have this discussion with me. And you've been around wine your whole life. So I I have such faith in what you say. Thank you very much. Thank you, Polly. I really appreciate it. There's not many people also that I would have necessarily been as comfortable having these conversations with because again, that judgment piece and mad props to like how you're trying to change the industry as well and like what you're trying to do as you know i've reached out intentionally because i really like when i see people trying to make things better and being willing to speak frankly about it thank you maya Thomas. thank you Polly. i appreciate it have a good evening and that's a wrap thank you for listening and a great big thank you to maya Thomas for joining me today the italian wine podcast is among the leading wine podcast in the world 
and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, tickets are on sale now. So for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.